I think the Bible seems to be pretty clear on this, that he did this twice, and it makes sense. He did this once at the beginning, and he did this once at the end. I think it's important to note the time frame here. If you take a look at verse 13, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. It can get kind of confusing when you read through the Bible, because you lose track of time. This is one of the things, if we can learn this lesson as we go through the Bible, it would make things so much easier. Like when you read through Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, yes, we call them the history books, but do not look at them as history books. When we look at history books, what we're used to as history books, if somebody would go look up George Washington, what they would do with George Washington is this. They give us the day that he was born. They give us the day he died, his years, the years that he was president. They give us all these numbers and factual informations. When you go look through that in the history books of the Bible, that's not the history that God is trying to teach us. The history that God is trying to teach us is his faithfulness to Israel as a covenant God and how they respond to it. That's the history you're being taught, is the covenant of God and God's faithfulness in the Old Testament. So with that being said, when we come to the book of John, and we start saying, well, this is a book about the life of Jesus. No, this is a book about just certain aspects of the life of Jesus. So it can be hard sometimes because we lose track of time. So a nice little hint to keep track of time in the Gospels. Look for the feasts. So you see Passover. And when you study the book of John, you will see that there's three different Passovers mentioned. John 2, John 6, and John 12, possibly John 5. You know that every time it mentions a new Passover, guess what happened? A year just passed. So when you go through the book of John, you see three for sure Passovers, possibly four. That's where we can get the idea that Jesus' public ministry lasted three to four years, so about three and a half years. And so what I do with my Bible when I'm going through John, I'll mark these feasts. And as you mark these feasts, you can get a calendar in your mind now of when the events are happening. So I just want to throw that out there. So time frame is the Passover. This is the beginning of Christ's public ministry. Passover is very important. There were three feasts that a Jewish male was required to go to. Three feasts. Deuteronomy 16.16 says this. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So a good Jew was supposed to come to Jerusalem, to the temple, three times a year. Passover, which is also known as Unleavened Bread, because Passover happened, and immediately the next day the Feast of Unleavened Bread happened, so they kind of got combined into one event there. The Feast of Weeks, which we call Pentecost, and then Tabernacle. Males were required to go, and it was not uncommon for females to come as well, too. In Luke chapter 2, you see the idea of Jesus, where he was 12 years old, being at the feast with his mom and dad. It was not uncommon for women to go as well. Passover was a big one. Josephus, which is a contemporary history guy at this time, he estimates that easily about 250,000 lambs were slaughtered at Passover. 250,000 It'd be very easy to have, in the time here, to have up to a million, if not maybe two million people coming upon Jerusalem at this moment. As many as could would stay in Jerusalem, and if they couldn't, they would stay outside of Jerusalem. So to set the tone here, this is a required feast for all Jewish males to go to. There is literally a million to maybe two million people now filling Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of Passover lambs are being slaughtered. So this is a huge event. And when you read verse 13, make sure you understand the context of that. So with that background, verse 14, 
Jesus goes into the temple and he sees them selling oxen, sheep, doves, and money changers doing business. Verse 14, doing business is an interesting word. It literally means sitting there. This was their Black Friday. I mean, this, this was huge to them. You have all these people coming through. And, and history teaches us, and I know this sounds so strange, that you could go to the temple area and buy souvenirs. This was a huge complex. You've heard me teach on this before. It was a 30-plus acre complex. The temple itself was possibly up to 16 stories tall. It was huge. It was beautiful. The one wall, the western wall of the temple, was over a quarter mile in length itself. This was a beautiful building, so much so that later on in the Gospels, the disciples say to Jesus, have you seen the temple? I mean, just look at it. So here you have possibly tens of thousands of people at the temple. It is just this huge 30-plus acre complex. You have all the different courts. You've got the court of the Gentiles. You've got the court of the women. You've got the temple itself proper, which is really a small section of this huge thing. So you have all these people now just sitting there doing business, selling things, buying things. Like I said, just keep thinking Black Friday. They're excited about this. What is going on that is that big a deal? Well, as a good Jewish male, you're required to come up and do something called the temple tax. You had to come pay this. Exodus says this in Exodus 30. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 geras. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone, including among those who are numbered, from 20 years old and above, shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more than the poor, and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. When you give an offering to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, and you shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel, and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the meeting, that it may be a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. So they are required to do this half shekel tax, if you will, to the temple tabernacle to pay for things that are going on. You see this in the Gospels. This is the classic story where they come up to Jesus. Or I shouldn't say come up to Jesus. They come up to Peter and say, does your master pay the temple tax? And Peter says, of course. Then he goes back to Jesus and says, do we pay the temple tax? And Jesus says, go catch a fish, Peter. Peter catches a fish and what's in the fish's mouth? The temple tax. Now, there's a deeper teaching to that, but this is something that they did. Now, we have to understand a little bit of what's going on at this time. You only could pay the temple tax in a certain shekel, half shekel. You couldn't bring whatever money you wanted. It had to be the temple half shekel. It comes out to about two days wages. So it's not a huge amount of money, but it had to be done specifically with the right amount of money. If any of you have ever traveled to a different country, you know what we're talking about. You exchange your money at the border there to get it. But this became something bigger than just simply paying a temple tax. And this is what you're seeing Jesus building to of cleansing the temple. I'm going to read this to you. It's from the book called The Temple that I've referenced before. It says, For annually on the first of Adar, which is the month before Passover, proclamation was made throughout the country by messengers sent from Jerusalem of the approaching temple tribute. So the day before Passover, they already start sending out messengers all over the country saying, Don't forget to pay your temple tax. On the 15th of Adar, the money changers opened stalls throughout the country to change the various coins, which the Jewish residents had at home or settlers might abroad might bring into the ancient money of Israel. So now on the 15th, they start setting up booths all over the country so you could go exchange your money. 
For custom had it that nothing but the regular half shekel of the sanctuary could be received at the treasury. On the 25th of Adar, business was only transacted within the precincts of Jerusalem and the temple. So the first, they proclaim, you've got to get it paid. 15th, they start setting up booths all over. By the 25th of the month, it only can be done at the temple. And if you refuse to pay this, you could be breaking the law and they could come cons- excuse me, confiscate your goods. So, you have people showing up that have not paid their temple tax. They have not exchanged it for the right thing. And so, as you are approaching this huge complex of the temple, remember, 30 plus acres here, tens of thousands of people. That's not even including the animals. We'll get to that in a little bit. And there's just booths set up all over the place. You'd go up and you would exchange your Roman coins to get the proper half shekel to do this. So, so far, so good. And you know where this is leading. Well, it costs a little bit to do this, right? So these money changers that are just sitting there, verse 14, they charge stuff. Now, we don't know for sure how much they charge. We can see this. One estimate was they charged 10 to 12% transaction fee. One book I read said they charged up to a fourth of a day's wages. Now, that's not a whole lot, but it's a lot. And what happens is this starts building up now. Because you're not just doing this for one person, a dozen people, or even a hundred people. You're doing this for potentially tens or hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, this is where you go to your local grocery store and you can find a bottle of water for 75 cents. You go to Cedar Point and it's $5.75. You have to take out a second mortgage on your home to go get it. Because you're buying the convenience of it. So, now you see what's going on. Passover, one of the three required feasts. Possibly millions of people in Jerusalem. Tens of thousands of people at the temple. Exchanging their money. Also exchanging the sacrifices. Verse 14. Because here's the other thing that's going on. Only temple approved animals could be accepted for sacrifice. And what history teaches us is this, that no matter how good your animal was, it was not going to be temple approved. So you brought your little lamb, so you could offer it at the temple as a good Jew, and you'd get to the temple and you'd bring it before the Levites and the priests, and they'd say, oh, let us just examine it for spot or blemish. Guaranteed they're going to find something. And now you're sitting there dejected. And they said, oh, don't, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And I'm just going to throw out terminology that we'd use today. Listen, you, you brought this lamb all the way from Nazareth, and that's 70 miles. We don't want you to go, go away empty-handed. Listen, we'll give you 10 bucks for the lamb, but you can't use it for a sacrifice. But when you know it, we have a bunch of temple-approved lambs right over there, and they're only 100 bucks. And that's what they did. And history teaches us they made a lot of money doing this. The priests did. This system had become corrupt. No other currency was accepted. No other animals were going to be accepted. So this sets the scene now, folks. Just imagine almost utter chaos of what is going on with everybody abusing this system. And now you see verse 15. Jesus making a whip. Driving them out of the temple, the sheep, the oxen, knocking over changers' money tables and overturning tables and saying, verse 16, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. 
Now we've got to talk about a couple things here. Is this anger? There's nothing about anger in here. The Bible doesn't have a problem saying that Jesus got angry because there was times where it said Jesus looked at them in anger. Is this rage? No, because rage carries the idea of not having control. What is this then? This is authority. This is not rage. This is not anger. This is authority. This is zeal. This is passion. Now, I've heard people take the idea of Jesus at the, at the temple clearing out the money ta- changers' tables, and they have now really taken that to extremes of Christian violence. There's nothing in here about people being hurt. There's nothing in here about animals being hurt. The temple at night had 24 guard booths with probably about 10 Levites in each guard booth plus the priests that were on duty. So the temple at night had 270 guards. There's nothing in here about the temple police being called. There's nothing in here. The Romans set up, if you will, a police station right at the temple. You see that in the book of Acts. Nothing about them being called. This does not look like this enraged man with demon eyes knocking things over. This is not anger. This is not rage. This is authority done in passion and zeal. Passion and zeal for what? Verse 17. For God's house. Look at his focus, verse 16. My father's house. My father's house. This is what is going on. This is not cruelty towards people, but this is an act of judgment on a corrupt system. Please remember that. This is an act of judgment on a corrupt system. Why is it happening now? Because Jesus comes to the temple all the time in the Gospels. Why now? Well, I think there's a hint of that. Exodus 12, 15, we've already mentioned that the Passover went along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. One of the things that was supposed to happen in the Feast of Unleavened Bread was this. Exodus 12, 15. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your house. Before they would get into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you had to go through your house and get all the leaven out. And it actually has become a tradition now that the Jews still to this day is that the wife is supposed to get all the leaven out of the house before this event. And then the husband comes through and he investigates the house to try to find it. And I've heard rumor has it that sometimes you leave a little bit of leaven just to find something to make it show that, hey, we cleaned and you found something. But it's the idea of the leaven being taken out. Is this not Jesus going to his house and cleaning out the leaven before the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a beautiful picture. Remember, the temple. It's God's representation on earth. This this is how God interacted with human beings, was through the temple. And it gets even deeper than that, because the veil in the temple is a picture of Jesus. Hebrews 10 tells us this, there was a new and a living way, which He, meaning Jesus, consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. That veil represents the flesh of Jesus Christ. So this is God wanting to have a relationship with us. And so therefore, Him coming and cleaning out the temple, He's doing it not in anger, not in rage, but in authority. He's doing it with zeal and passion. This is not cruelty towards people or animals. It's an act of judgment on a corrupt system. It's a picture of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, getting rid of the sin and the leaven that is in there. And this is a picture of God's house being cleansed and cleaned. And what a beautiful picture this is. 
So keep that in the back of your mind as we go through the rest of this. Let's pause real quick. Any quick questions, comments about this before we go on? Okay. Yeah, Rich. That's what uh, Richard was just saying. You see why the importance of John the Baptist. Things were getting so corrupt at the temple. You needed to have an alternative preacher. And don't forget, John the Baptist was of priestly descent. His dad obviously was a priest at the temple. So John the Baptist was a Old Testament prophet living in the New Testament. He was also of priestly descent as well, too. Anybody else got anything here before we go on? Okay. Well, obviously this creates a little bit of an issue. 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us to us since you do these things? You've got to remember, this is not Jesus that's been walking around for a few years. This is Jesus that's just coming into public events. He was baptized to John the Baptist. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And immediately after he got baptized, he went into the wilderness for 40 days. Comes back in John chapter 1, which we see, starts gathering some disciples... And then he goes to Cana and he does a very private wedding miracle. I mean, it's not a huge event because Cana was a very small town. This is Christ now showing up all of a sudden. And now people are saying, 18, what gives you the right? His response, 19. Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. Raise it up. Jesus says there's a deeper picture going on here than what you guys see and you don't understand it. Now I think it's interesting in 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. These words are used against Jesus later on in his trial. It says in Matthew 26 at the trial of Jesus, many false witnesses came forward, but they found none. But at last two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And then when Jesus was hanging on the cross... They said to him, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So these words that he spoke at the beginning of his public ministry are now used against him later on at his trial and when he's hanging on the cross. But to make sure we know what he's talking about, just jump ahead to 21. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus is looking past this temple. He's looking past the building. He's stopping and saying, no, 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 no. This is something deeper. The building, once again, was beautiful. Look at verse 20. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you'll raise it up in three days? What Herod did was he just kept pouring money into it. Just kept making it more and more extravagant and beautiful. I've mentioned some of the stats here before. I looked online to try to find uh, some nice diagrams, pictures, and the reality is it just, I don't think it can do it justice. And I know for everybody has different mindsets. You know, for me, when I keep mentioning this idea of 30 plus acres, I can envision that. Growing up on a farm, I can envision that. I, I know the field behind our house, you know, 12, 13 acres. I can see how big this is. When I, when I said the western wall was over 1,500 feet long, living out in the country, I can look at my address and realize I'm about a quarter mile. I can, that's a huge wall. Every time I go to Toledo Hospital, they built that new building down there, and I count the floors because the temple was possibly up to 16 stories tall. And then when I pull in that parking lot, I think, that's 
how big the temple would have looked to them. This is why the disciples, once again in Matthew 24, sit there in awe and just stop and say, this is why people, when they would come to Jerusalem, would visit the temple and probably buy a souvenir. Hey, you went to Jerusalem, did you see the temple? Uh, can you not, I mean, how can you go to Jerusalem and not see the temple? <laughs> because that's just the beauty of it. And so that's why they're saying, verse 20, 46 years to build this thing and you're going to raise it up in three days? He's talking about his body. He's not talking about the temple because really what it comes down to is we already mentioned in Hebrews chapter 10, Jesus is the temple. He is God's way of communicating with man on earth. He is God's connection to man. It's not about the building anymore. It's about Christ. That's why when he was on the cross, the veil was torn from top to bottom to show us access to the Lord. That's why I think it says in the book of Acts, many priests came to the faith. Can you imagine... And it looks like, if you study it out, Jesus died, it looks like, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 3 o'clock in the afternoon is when they started the evening sacrifice. You may say, well, that's not evening. But well, take a while to do the evening sacrifice. And the deal was, from a Jewish mindset, that you had to get the sacrifice done before the sun went down. Remember, the Jews start their day in the evening and it goes to the day. They have it flip-flop from us. That's why when you go read in Genesis chapter 1, it says it was evening and then morning the first day. That's the way they do it. So they had to get the sacrifice done before the sun went down. So you started the sacrifice in the middle of the afternoon. So when that veil was being torn around 3 o'clock, I don't know and I don't want to speculate, it is quite possible. There's some poor priest in there doing the altar of incense. And he's just trying to do his job. And you've already taught, we've already done our study in the book of Luke about how uh, unique it was to be the priest before the altar of incense. You're just trying to do your job and all of a sudden the veil comes down. And you have to go out and explain that to everybody. Guys, you ain't going to believe this. What? The veil tore. Did you touch it? No, of course I didn't touch it. What? You just fell? Yeah, it just fell. It feels like some of the conversations I have with my kids. I come in and there's a milk all spilled over the kitchen floor. What happened? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Milk just jumped out of the fridge and took its own lid off and just dumped itself all over the floor? Yeah, that's been what happened. And somebody has to go back and repair the veil. So my point is this, where it says in Acts that many priests came to the faith. Don't you think those priests had to stop and think for a second? This is something deeper. The veil just doesn't tear from top to bottom. It just doesn't fall. There's something else going on here. Something else going on. Now, a quick point here before we move on. Did you catch what he said in verse 19? I will raise it up. I will raise it up. Isn't that fascinating? Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And we know he's talking about his own body in 21. Now, this is one of those things where if you study it out a little bit, you start seeing the depth of the teaching of the Trinity. Because the question to be asked is this, who raised Jesus from the dead? So let's answer that question. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Verse 19, Jesus says, I will raise it up. To go a little bit further, John 10, 18, speaking of his life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down to myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. So Jesus said he raised himself from the dead. Okay, well, what about Romans 8, 11? But if the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Romans tells me that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. How about 1 Peter 3, 18? 
Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. First Peter tells me the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. But then Romans 6, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Romans 6 tells me God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. What a beautiful teaching on the Trinity. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. That's why it's so vitally important to realize these things, that this is the Trinity working together. And you can look for this in the Bible, and you can see these teachings coming together there. And I just absolutely love it when we connect all those dots as we just kind of do this. All right, a lot of information to be thrown out here. Let's pause real quick, make sure we're all on the same page. Once again, any quick questions, comments about anything? Yeah. When you study out creation, um, they all take credit for it. So, either God is schizophrenic, or there is three in one, that one is three. So, anybody else got anything? Okay. A couple quick things here before we go on. I like 17. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. When I make this statement here, I'm not making this statement, I hope, in an egotistical way, but it's just the reality. I read a lot. I love reading. I love finding books. I have now, I used to be a book guy, like had to have the book in front of me, and I still prefer that. But in the technology of today, I can get online now from Amazon and find the same book in digital format for pennies on the dollar. And I can highlight that, and I can email myself those notes, and I've shared with you before, I've built up this huge repertoire of notes now that I can just search. I love reading. But here's the deal. I'll read, and I'll read a lot, and I'll get done, and I'll stop and say, I have no idea what I just read. Like, I don't, I don't remember it. I mean, I know I read it. I mean, I just read chapters and chapters and chapters. And, and I, I was doing a class one time, and it was a survey of the Old Testament. And part of the deal was that you had to read the entire Old Testament, which sounds real good. Week one, you're reading Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. That's a lot. And then I, the next week was Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and the next week was First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and Ezra, and Nehemiah. I mean, you're just reading so much, and you get done, you're like, okay, I know I read it. I am so thankful that there's a verse like 17. Then his disciples remembered Adding to that, John 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. It is my job to be faithful to read it. It's my job to be faithful to mark it, to underline it, to study it. And if the Lord leads me to memorize it, it's the Holy Spirit's job to bring it to my remembrance. And I'm just so thankful. I have people come up to me all the time and say, Pastor, I, I read it and I get done and I don't even know what I just read. And I'm like, me too. Remember, Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance at the right moment in time. We need to be faithful, as it says in Timothy, be diligent to be a workman who rightly divides the word of truth. 
Be diligent to be in the Word. So if you are kind of talking yourself out of Bible study and reading by saying, oh, I read and I get nothing out of it. Hey, join the crowd. Trust that the Holy Spirit will bring it to remembrance at the right moment. And to kind of build on this, look at 22. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered... He had said this to them and believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So that means even at the right moment he brings it to memory. And that means at the right season he brings it to memory. There are times where I'm preparing a message. And a phrase comes up. Something comes up. And I thought, I know I've read that somewhere. And I go into my computer and I type in the keyword, And it brings up the email that I sent myself two years ago. Wow, Lord, thank you for at that moment bringing it to remembrance. There's times I'm up here teaching and I have, I've prepared this message, I've gone through this message, and then all of a sudden, this, this note hits. And if I'm doing it like at the uh, 8.30 or the 9 o'clock service now, I'll, I'll make a note. Like, Lord, that was good. Brings to remembrance. I just want to encourage you to keep understanding these things that this is how the Holy Spirit moves and works. But just please, please, and I don't mean this in a legalistic have to. I don't mean it that way in any way whatsoever. Take the time to read it, to mark it, to underline it, to study it, to memorize it. Isaiah 55 promises me it will not return void. And I see twice in right here, 17, the disciples remembered. 22, his disciples remembered. Thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit's role of bringing to memory these verses that when we need them at the right moment, at the right time, to say, Lord, your word is good and does not return void. Last point before we let you guys go. There's a bit of a deeper thing going on here, I think, in the idea of the temple. 16. Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. You know, in one other account, in one of the other cleansings of the temple, it says, uh, my father's house should be a house of prayer. God did not want his temple being a house of merchandise, being misused and abused. Well, what does the Bible tell me about the temple nowadays? 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. So that means I'm the temple of God right now. The Holy Spirit lives inside of me as a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. And if you're here tonight or if you're watching at home and you are born again and saved, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You are the walking temple of God. And God does not want his temple being used and abused. So therefore, we need to make a conscious choice of what we are allowing to set up in our temple. It goes back to the classic song, Be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little ears what you hear. As the temple of God, I see the passion and the zeal. Let me point again. Not anger, not rage, but in authority, he comes in and cleans the temple. As a temple of God, Jesus has the authority to come into my life and clean me out when he needs to. And if I'm allowing things to be set up in my temple, then the Lord needs to come take care of that. Revelation also mentioned this as well. It says one of the promises given to us in Revelation 3 is, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You know, we can keep this teaching and keep on going where First Peter says we're living stones being brought together with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. The teaching just keeps going on and on here. That this idea of being a holy building. And that's hard for us to grasp because we don't think of the temple. But yet, 
any Jew living in the New Testament times and they would receive those letters when the temple was still up and going, they'd be like, wow. That building that we stand in all of, Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You're that building now. That's, that's just a deep thing to keep chewing on. Please remember that. As a walking temple of God, be careful of what you allow to be set up in your temple. John Piper had a real neat point. He just simply said this, you are always in a temple. I mean, think about that, parents. Don't you do that to your kids? You're walking into church. We change the way we talk when we walk into church. We put on different clothes when we go to church. I know Dawn does that at home. The boys will be wearing something. You can't wear that to church. Why? Because you don't wear that to church. It's okay to wear to the creek. It's okay to wear up to Ron's to get ice cream, but you can't wear that to church. Because there's a different standard of what we're doing here. And maybe if some of you are maybe raised in a much more mainline, maybe denominational field, you know that there's a whole different set of pomp and circumstance sometimes when you're going into buildings, etc. I like what Piper's saying. You're always in a temple. That means I should not have a church face and church talk and church speak and church actions and a church attitude. One of my biggest things is I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want my boys growing up and saying, oh boy, dad was different behind the pulpit than he is at home. No, if I'm always in a temple, I should always try to be the same wherever I'm at with whatever I'm doing and how I'm acting and living and speaking and saying. So just keep that in the back of your mind with this teaching. We are the walking temple of God now. And we are owned by Christ. As it says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. we were bought by Him. He owns me. So therefore, He's allowed to clean me out as He sees fit. So we'll go ahead and close it up there and we'll pick it up in 23 next week. Any final questions, comments about anything here before we let you guys go? Alrighty, let's pray. Lord, let us be the walking temple for you, for your glory, for your glory, for your glory. I just think of that passage in Peter where it says judgment begins at the house of God. If there's something right now that you're just convicting us of, let us be obedient to that and to let it go, Lord. If there's something that needs to be cleansed in the temple, then let it be cleansed right now in your love and your grace and your mercy. Let us represent you on this earth in your name. And safety, Lord. Safety for all those traveling out there in your name. Amen. And we have announcements here real quick. Just want to let everybody know. Uh, I was I got a text today. If somebody is in need of a, a washer and dryer, it's an older washer and dryer set, still working. But if somebody's in need of a washer or dryer, let me know. Uh, winter weather giveaway coming up. You can start dropping items off back in room five. Uh, somebody will be out here at the church. Usually after 11, you can drop stuff off if you'd like. The actual giveaway is going to start Monday, February 15th, and also go Tuesday, February 16th as well. Items to consider, hats, gloves, scarves, boots, long sleeve shirts, coats, jeans, sweaters. Uh, once again, this is just clothing and winter clothing items. This is not the typical garage sale giveaway as well. And keep the ministry of this in prayer. You know, as the people show up to really represent Christ. That's really to really represent Christ there as well. Uh, prayer sheets in the back. If you haven't grabbed one, I believe this is our last week. Spending the first 40 days praying here. We're doing Heart for the Lost this week. Heart for the Lost. If you know any soldiers overseas, even if they don't come out here to church, let Donna know. Um, 
We've got a ministry going on where we like to send them a care package as well. And uh, for those that are interested, uh, Carol and Virgil Light. Virgil and Carol has worshipped out here for us for years. Virgil passed away this week. And there will be visitation tomorrow at 12, right? Uh, is the, in service at 1. And so uh, they'll be out here at the church. If you want to come out, you can pay your respects there to Carol and family and keep the Light family in prayer for the God of comfort to be with them as well. All right. Hey, winter weather cancellation, too. If we ever have to cancel church, sign-up sheet's back there for the one call. You've got a phone call, text, or email if you haven't signed up already. Please do. And if you're watching online, let Pat know, and she can get you signed up as well. Hey, you guys have a good week. God bless. Safety as you travel home out there. And we'll see you there online or face-to-face next week. Take care.